Hey out there, rock and rollers, and welcome to yet another edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road. We're technically going to call this one number 50, part two. Some people might call it 51, but it is a continuation of our last show, which is a review of the movie and soundtrack to the 1986 classic Highlander. And I know some people were a little upset that we broke it up into two shows, but there's a good reason, actually two good reasons for that. One is, we didn't want to have a two-plus-hour show. We like to keep it to the hour and 10, hour and 15, maybe hour and 20-minute range as our longest. But we also, on this episode, at the conclusion of our review of Highlander, have an interview with executive producer, writer, creator, and showrunner of the upcoming Game of Thrones prequel, House of Dragon, Ryan Condal. The reason we're having Ryan on is not only because he has a great podcast of his own called The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of, where he and his partner David discuss Hollywood movie props and pieces of movie memorabilia that they collect and seek out and find. Sometimes they don't get them, but sometimes they do, and they talk about that world quite a bit. But Ryan actually wrote a reboot script for Highlander. Now, Highlander's been in the news this year as Henry Cavill was cast to be in the film with the folks who are now making the movie. Ryan worked on it for a while. Turns out he had a great opportunity to come to England and do House of Dragon. So now he's not working on that project. But I knew he had a tie to it. And I knew he was a fan, and we asked him to be on the show, and he was gracious enough to come on. So I can't wait for you to hear what we talked to Ryan about. First, though, as usual, please check us out, www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. You can tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf, at actionjack72. And, of course, we're always looking for some five-star reviews, so if you like what you're hearing, please let people know. It just helps us find more listeners like you and helps us improve the show. And if you like part one of our review of Highlander, you're going to love part two, because not only do we conclude our take on this 1986 classic, but we get the take of somebody else who's maybe a little bit younger than us, but found the movie, came to love it just like we did, and eventually played a role in trying to perpetuate the story and the genre in Ryan Condal. So let's jump back in, guys. Let's finish up the review, and we'll get to Ryan's interview right here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, next scene, he goes to Brenda's apartment, and he knows what's up. Like, she's got the she's got the revolver ready to go. She's taping the conversation. She's got John Polito watching the place outside, which maybe she didn't know. But, yeah, he, he brings her some brandy. He's talking about 1783 when it was bottled, like he was there. Because guess what? He was there. And then he gives her her own book as, as a gift. It's like, yeah, doesn't mention you working for the Met, but it mentions you work with the police. Lady. Well, the, the cool part about this scene is, first of all, he's got it all figured out. She thinks she's so sly. He's got it all he figured out. He knows what's I up. Don't, I don't think she knew that the cop was there. I don't think no, so. No, she no. knew the gun was there. She knew the police, the tape was there. But there was a cool story about how, I guess, Mulcahy went to dinner with, and now I can't remember who it was, but somebody famous, and they opened a bottle of champagne from 1949. And the guy said, I'm breathing air. You're breathing air from 1949. So this was really cool when he opens it up and you see him going through the events of 1783, not just like, like he's remembering it, like, oh, it's all coming back to me now. So it's a cool addition again to just the, you know, he's been alive for so long. Mm -hmm. There's got to be stuff that you would forget. And then, oh yeah, I remember that. That was, that was a great year to be alive. Yeah. We wrote the Declaration of Independence and Mozart this and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you you accumulate all those amazing memories and sometimes a smell like that brandy could, could bring it all back. Right. So then he leaves her there. They cut back to the 1530s and you can see they built a little house kind of near the wreckage (laughs) of the old castle there. And he and Heather are living together, making a life together. And this is where the Who Wants to Live Forever song comes into the picture. And I guess it, it, on the on the record, Ryan May sings the beginning and Freddie Mercury sings the end. But in the movie version, it's, it's all Freddie, I think. And they show them, yeah, they're living a life and enjoying life together. And then one year comes in and now Heather's wrinkly and white-haired and old and Connor looks... Exactly the same as ever. And, you know, she passes away. There might be another few seconds of deleted scenes here again uh, that they've kind of cut in there. But it's like, you know, light a candle and remember me on my birthday. It's a sad scene. It's like, I wanted to have your children. He's like, I don't want to lose the love of my life. The one who took me in after my whole village kicked me out. And I went through this quickening. And the guy who saved my life, she witnessed him get murdered. And now I have to lose you. This sucks. So what does he do? He buries her. He sticks the sword as a headpiece. He burns their home, and he moves out. Yeah. Done, you know. Yeah, it, it is really a it is really a gut wrenching scene when you think about you know it, it, like 
what Conrad, what Ramirez said, everything was going to come true. I told you this was going to happen. You knew this was going to, yeah, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine up until it's not. And yeah, he's just, that's when he just realizes that this is it. Like whatever, whatever the rest of my existence is going to be, it's going to be alone. Right. I, it has to be because I'm not doing this again. That's right. right. You were talking about like the deleted scene with him having kids. That would have been, no, that would have been terrible because that's part of the thing is you can't ever, you can't ever experience life like a normal person. Well, no, it wasn't a deleted scene. It was, uh, it was originally part of the story. They decided oh, okay. to, to cut out of the script. Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Because like, it just, it just didn't work. Then of course we flash forward. They're in the park on one of the bridges and we meet Castagir, who's, I guess one of his buddies, one of the immortals. And they're talking about 1783, you know, they're like, ah, okay. the gathering is here in New York. All right. You know, and, and well, wait a minute, though. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, that scene is fantastic with the bridge in Central Park, which yeah. I had to go to. Like, as soon as I saw it, I'm, like, I'm going to that bridge. That's so, I don't know how you found, well, I mean, you scout locations, but to put it on there, it's just a great extra part of the scene to have that. And they meet up with each other. And here's the part where I'm like, hmm, because he goes into his pocket and he pulls out an empty hand. It's like, did you think for a minute you were going to throw down there? Or what's the deal? I mean, obviously, yeah, they have been friends, but you've got this tie. There's only a few left, right? On. Yeah. And then and then you find out, oh, yes, they are friends. Yes, they're, you know, ooh, you know, time is running short now. And then what's in there? I can't tell you that I've never had a little boom, boom before. <laughs> that, uh, ooh, that'll yeah. wreck you. And then they cut back. They cut back to 1783 where he insulted some rich guy's wife. So he has a duel <laughs> on Boston Common. The guy stabs him 13 times. And he's like, look, I'm sorry I insulted your wife uh, and I bid you good day. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, his assistant is bringing him a new sword every time and trying to kiss him every time he stabs Connor and all that. And in the deleted scene, it's like, here's here, my lord, shoot him. And the guy's just walking off. So instead, he shoots his assistant in the back. <laughs> And that's another, It's here's another one where the guy, I don't even know who that guy was, but he steals the scene as, oh, thank you, mother. And the guy's just like, okay, enough already. Every single time. Oh, uh, absolutely. It's the greatest thing ever. He wants to kiss him. Yeah. I'm sorry for calling your wife a bloated warthog. <laughs> and I bet you could day. It's great. It's great stuff. But it always... That, that's always one of the things, and I understand the movie can't be nine hours long, but man, you could have had so many more flashbacks of other things that he had done, but I understand we got to keep it to a tight runtime in the theaters. I know, but that's part of what's so disappointing about the second one, is that you could have done a lot of that. A lot of the what could have made the first one a three-hour movie, make the second one with a lot of cutbacks to the back-in-the-day stuff, with scenes that didn't make it in, or you could embellish some stuff with Castagir or whatever, other folks, Fazil, you know, whomever, to tell more of the backstory. But let's not get into Highlander 2. Let's stay focused because we've still got at least right, half but, the movie to but go. To your, but to your point, both of those characters, Castagir and Fazil, obviously he knew them before. I mean, Castagir, you got the thing where they had the party, but he met Fazil. It wasn't just like, hey, random guy, I don't know you. Oh, mm -hmm. I've seen you before. So, yeah, there would be a whole backstory as to him running into these people from time to time. That's right. That's right. So then you cut to your don't ever speak to me scene <laughs> with my buddy Richard Bonehill again. And when he leaves him, I hope you get your head chopped off, asshole. <laughs> Which is funny. But then, all right, you got the survival nut. So you cut to the car. There's an ex-Marine driving around his Trans Am. He's got like an Uzi and a bunch of weapons. And, for, you know, maybe Soldier of Fortune magazine next to him. 
Hammer to Fall by Queen is on the radio, yes. which is not on a kind of magic album. It came before, was on Works, I think, maybe. I think so, yeah. I love that tune, just standalone. That's a great extra throw-in. Yeah, good, good song. You know, they, they had it. Okay, so they didn't write it for the picture, but they had it. It fits in. He's driving around the deuce, you know, maybe, uh, you know, checking out the hookers or whatever. Happens upon Castagir and Kurgan fighting. So he's like, all right, this is for real. I'm going to go be the Marine that I am. And he's running around. He's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, what the hell is going on? So they're fighting, good fight scene. Castagir gets it, and his body floats up in the air. And the, the dude, the Marine, fills Kurgan full of, and unloads the clip on him, right? Must have shot him 50 times. Goes over to see the body. Body's already moved. He's already gone. And then he stabs him, picks him up, and throws him. And, of course, the cheesy lightning and the special effects happen again, you know? Great use of Queen right there. Great use of a song that wasn't purpose-built, right? It's... It's not a kind of magic. It's not who wants to live forever, which was written for the picture. Uh, this is right. something they had that just worked. And then I, and then you know the whole thing about him just casually walking off, cutting the top of the the uh, car off, throwing the dude out, <laughs> and just leaving. Like you just cut this. You know, you basically just killed two people, right? Like, for all intents and purposes, and you're just moving on with your life. Yeah, rip the yeah, off the car, I, I throw the dude out, take the wife maybe, for a ride. <laughs> Maybe in 1985, New York, two people sword fighting in a crappy alley. Maybe you would have seen that. I don't know. You could have. Yeah, I think you probably could have. You know, and then they see the, the old uh, vet in the hospital, North and, uh, and Polito do. But then they cut to the hot dog scene. <laughs> Afterwards, like, that mayor called me at 2 in the morning. I don't even answer the phone. And the dude's laughing. What does incompetent mean? What does baffled mean? I love that. <laughs> Well, and what I love too, back to the the scene in the uh, when they're in the hospital, he shows them the pic. He thinks he's got it now. He's shows them the picture of of Nash, of Nash, and he's just like, no, 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 big guy, scar across his neck, and he's like, but there was something else. And then they cut to the outside, mm -hmm. and he's gesturing, but you can't hear what he's saying. And then the cops are like, okay, right. thanks, no, no, we, no, thank you, we'll get back. Oh, gotcha, <laughs> have a nice day go home and yeah. tell mommy you did real good okay yeah <laughs> yeah meanwhile brenda's still trying to track down nash and so they I, this may have been deleted scene too because before she goes to see her buddy with a computer who can piece together his signature you see her go to like the hall of records and look up yeah. you know some birth certificates she goes to the doctor who, who birthed the actual nash said yeah he was legitimate for all of a minute and a half he died in birth too so that's his mo he finds orphans or you know unwanted children who died early on he gets their birth certificate takes over their identity and he can be them for 75 years or, or whatever and then he has to pick a new one and yeah and, and they, they he used the computer to piece together five or six signatures that all kind of put together russell nash so then she's like so he's been walking around since the 1700s that that just can't be well getting to the money to the money here we get to the church. I don't know if in the original he actually, I know in the original he's in the church. He's lighting a candle and he's talking to Heather, you know, on her birthday and then telling Ramirez to look over silly peacock. Was that in the original? I don't, yes. re okay, okay. All right, so I just didn't remember that. He goes and sits down. Here comes the Kurgan. <laughs> and he knocks out all the lights. And now he's got this new punk look because the sketch artist got right. the Marines yeah. description. So he shaved his head and he's got safety pins on his neck scar and he's looking more like a punk than like a heavy metal guy. And he goes in there, I am in disguise. <laughs> so good. So good. 
And he tells, and that's where he tells McLeod that, you know, he, I raped his woman when his body wasn't even cold. And he realizes that, that the Kurgan was with Heather and now he's really mad. Like he wasn't going to kill him before. Now he's really going to kill him. And then he licks the priest's hand in the deleted scene. I guess that was too anti-religion, anti-establishment for the United States, something like that. I, I thought it was a good little three seconds to leave in there. It's certainly something his character would have done, right? It's... it. it to me, I love that scene because you could have you could have cut that all out. I love the fact that he just goes in and he's just he's just putting the candles out because he's like, "This is stupid. You people are stupid." Right. He goes through the whole thing. He puts his feet up, and yeah, then it's just you know he cares nothing for these people, and then he's, "I'm sorry, I'm a worm," and he licks the guy's hand, and then he's just crushing it in his hand like the handshake. It just shows you that he's just this. Like he cares nothing about any of this and the whole, th but, but he does say when he's like, let's go right now. And he's like, holy ground. Even he won't mess with that. He plays by the, some rules. That's here. right. And then I guess Brown said that when that was done, he went back in there and apologized to everyone in that church. <laughs> Is that right? He was like, it was so disgusting. Watch this. Hello, ladies. <laughs> Nuns. No sense of humor. But it's just, it goes back to that. It goes back to that. He just doesn't, like, all of this doesn't apply to him. He doesn't care. It's just, you know, the whole idea of religion is just so trivial right. to him. Because just it just pains there's him. There's no life or death to him. There's death for everybody else, right? Yeah. Correct. So. Correct. And, and somebody, I was reading something where it was like, I mean, they never really say when he was born, but they kind of, you know, they, they make reference to it. He could have been born before Christianity even existed. So right. to him, it's just like, whatever, this is just another silly thing that people do. Exactly. All right, so cut from there, and we go to his office, and Brenda's there, and she's like, I want answers, you know, what do you know about Russell Nash, who died at birth in Syracuse, New York? It's like, okay, all right, come on, I'll take you behind the curtain, the great and powerful Oz. So she takes... <laughs> He, he takes her to up to the loft and then into the man cave, which is, you know, like a like a fridge and a widescreen TV short of being the perfect place on planet, as far as I can tell. The nice big circle you can sit in there and everything's got all these great stuff in it. He lets her That's stab it. him. Well, okay, but before, hang on, before right. she does that, she walks in. And it's a certain, but you're looking down and she walks around the entire circle. That is a great scene. Great shot. And if you pay attention, and I didn't for a long time, but I read this and so I paid attention this time. <laughs> Ramirez's coat and hat are in amongst that ah, with the peacocks on it. Good so that's call. pretty cool. That is cool. But just that, that whole, the whole scene of her walking 360 degrees around this giant cool pit that you can sit in it's just fantastic and she's like what is this a museum look at all this stuff yeah it must be worth a fortune she lets he, and then he lets her stab him he's like i cannot die and then she starts to realize all right he's handsome he's rich he can't die i think i'll fuck him yeah <laughs> so well i mean that's again you go back to your 80s checklist that has to be one of the things too i'm not mad at you i'm just saying yeah that's that would that would ne definitely be the natural next progression to mortally wounding somebody who's turns out to be immortal. Well, let's just get right to it. Yeah, you're fascinating. You're wealthy. You're handsome. You've got all this great stuff. Let's have sex. Come on. So they go up <laughs> to the left, and we do see some shadowy nudity, some bare breasts in there, which, you know, as a teenager watching HBO, you're like, oh, wow, man, that's awesome. Jackpot. Excellent. And then uh, this is the next cut scene that I really don't understand why they didn't 
leave it in there. It's like, okay, then the next day they're at the zoo and they're looking at the lions and he's like, it's not going to work, Brenda. You know, it's just, I've got this whole gathering thing going on and, you know, I'm immortal and you're not. And she's like, yeah, I guess you're right. And then in the shadows, you can see the Kurgan was spying on them. That's cool. Okay, he did that very well. And then she goes, don't go, don't, don't, don't lose your head, right? Don't go losing your head. And she walks off. Kurgan ducks out. And Connor looks behind him real fast. Was there somebody there? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why they, I don't know why they cut that out. I mean, again, maybe it's, maybe that was for a time thing because it was like, okay, this was long enough. But the one thing going back to the, and I didn't realize it until I watched it again this time, or I didn't think about this. The whole thing with the stag, mm-hmm. right? Like field the stag. They're with the lions. There is he doing that with the lions? Like you know, just because there's a, there's a scene where he's looking at it and it looks at him and it's growling. I don't know, but yeah, you don't. The Kurgan doesn't say anything. You just see the silhouette in the back. Like right. he's he's messing with them now. Like the 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 plan is starting to come together here. Of what he's going to do? Yeah, it's like Connor. I don't even know if he wants the prize. He just wants to live to the next day. The Kurgan wants the prize. That's why right. Kurgan's team's called. Give me the prize! You know, because he really wants... And you know what what I was going to say, too? I forgot about this. In the scene in the church, right, when he talks about Ramirez and he says he was an effete snob and he died on his knees, to me that just hammers home the point that he... The Kurgan believes this is mine. Yes. I'm the one that deserves this. The rest of the you're weak, you're disgusting. Right. I am the one. Yeah, I was built for this. I am the one that deserves this. I will see this till the end. I will rule and dominate. Correct. I will enslave humanity. This is what I'm built for. Yeah, Absolutely. as it should be. But that scene at the zoo makes more sense in that the next scene, which was always in the picture, was the Kurgan at Brenda's apartment coming to grab her. It's like, right. why would you even know who Brenda was? Like, ah, you were following her. Right. Following him, see her. It's like, okay, well, this is how it works to get to him. I'll use her. And that's easy. So he gets her in the apartment. And then there's this bizarre scene of them driving through New York where they play a little bit of Don't Lose Your Head by Queen, but it morphs into New York, New York by Queen, and which is not on anything that I can really see. It's it's not on, it's a kind of magic. But there, he's driving through New York and he's going the wrong way and he's driving on the sidewalk and a few scenes you see them like splatter faces on the windshield. I'm like, ooh, that's a little heavy, man, you know? But, but again, it's, it's I don't care. I can do whatever I want. Watch mm-hmm. this. Like, I don't, I don't play by the same rules. I don't know how they shot that scene of him driving the wrong way in New York on a budget that they had. Well, they must have closed off some streets from like 2 to 4 in the morning or something like that, you know. Something like that, yeah. I mean, it, it did help that it was at night. But, yeah, that's a cool – and it's a cool scene because it just it, – like I said, it just points out the fact I don't care. I'll hit people on the sidewalk. I'll drive the wrong way. I'll wreck this car, whatever. It doesn't matter to me. That's right. So it comes to the penultimate scene. It takes place on the roof of Silver Cup Studios. was originally supposed to be – at the Statue of Liberty, which okay. makes some sense. And you could show them fighting on the island. You could show them fighting up the stairs. I would guess they would end up on the torch around there at some point. Probably. Might have been a little cliche. So they changed that to an amusement park. And that could have been fun with like going through the House of Mirrors and then maybe sticking Brenda on top of a merry-go-round or, you know, or on a Ferris wheel or something like yeah. that. And a lot of different opportunities for a filmmaker to do that. But it's they do it at the top of Silver Cup Studios, 
Before that, he says goodbye to Rachel. Like, you know, there's power of attorney. I fill forms out. Again, there's a few more seconds here. There's a few more little bit of deleted scene they didn't have in the original original. You know, it's talking about Russell, Russell Nash dies tonight. And she says goodbye to him or whatever. But again, he repeats to her what he said when he first met her. So, hey, it's kind of magic. And he walks off. He's never going to see her again. And she's going to get his fortune or you know his stuff and all that kind of stuff he's going to disappear and she's going to be in charge of that she's like you're not coming back win or lose are you it's like nope it's over after this yeah you knew you knew this was going to happen you knew this was going to happen at some point in time and, and timetable got moved up but yeah win or lose russell nash dies tonight here we are so all right so we cut to the roof of silver cup studios he's got brenda tied up up on the sign and then eventually they start fighting on the sign fight 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 pretty big fight knocks him down then it's like he's just trying to kill the sign. Kurgan's like just killing the sign, right? He's just trying to knock it down because that could kill Brenda too. And obviously it could fall on Connor. But then it looks like it would have been dangerous to film. I know that they some shots may have been taken in New York, but they must have shot this in a studio, especially when this, the, the letters are falling down off the sign yeah. and the, the water tower bursts. And so now they're in the water and there's electricity everywhere and, this, and the, the letters are falling down while they're fighting. I'm like, that looks pretty dangerous. This must have been half their budget. The, the, the remaining budget was on this scene, you know? Yeah, and the, and the, um, the water tower falls over and there's a zillion gallons all over the place. Yeah, that that was probably the most expensive scene to film in the whole movie. Even with the feel full of extras in, in uh, Scotland, this had to be the... Well, he, yeah, I mean, you know, they didn't even give those people breakfast, so that couldn't have been that expensive, <laughs> you know? And, and then, yeah, to have all the special effects, have that stuff fall at the right place and pull down and sequence while there's stunt people there and stuff, yeah, that's, that's pretty dangerous. So then... Eventually, they fall down into the warehouse, this big, open, empty warehouse. Not a lot of water comes down, despite it flooding the roof, but then they yeah. they just kind of crash okay. down for the final fight. And this is where you've got that kind of triumphant came in music, like it's building and building into something. It's getting to be pretty special, and we, we know what's going to happen. And, and Brenda gives him a little bit of a hand when he loses his sword. But then after that, you kind of realize he's going to beat him, isn't he? He's going to beat the Kurgan, which you kind of always knew. I mean, if you know anything about right. movies, <laughs> you know he's going to do it. So he he cuts his head off, and then they use, you know, not the helicopter, but like the like you're talking about, the, the, the line that kind of comes down from the top right in front of him. And I remember when we first watched this together, Jackson, when they're, when they're closing in on him, you go, say it, say it. <laughs> they close in on him and go, there can be only one. And all the windows break everywhere. And then the maybe the oddest part of the whole picture where these like ghosts and demons that are obviously like pencil drawn onto the film are battling around. And he's going, I know everything. I know everything. And they're going in and out of him and fighting with themselves and him. And it's just totally bizarre. It was almost like you, from the beginning, you set you set it up what was going to happen. When there's only one left, fight to the death, and then you win the prize. And then it was kind of like, okay, we're filming this. What what is the prize? What's the prize? What does he get? Um, <laughs> hmm, hang on a minute. Let me. I'll be right back. Yeah, it's, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really make any sense. Like you said, it's 
it goes the special effects go from bad to like yeah it, it's almost like it goes to the what's the aha video where they're you know take on me where they're all the pencil drawings yeah and it's just you can see that he's like on this wire harness and right. flipping around in the air getting everything so yeah that's a little uh that those effects didn't age well yeah those were that's... not so special those effects <laughs> the light is one thing but the ghost demon thingies yeah, you know, the AHA video was was way more professional than that. <laughs> no doubt about it. So then, okay, then he collapses, boom, on the ground. And there's Brenda. It's like, oh, Brenda, great. Now what? So then they cut back to Scotland, and it's modern-day Scotland, because you can see, like, a Harrier jet or something fly over. You can see, you know, he's driving in a Jaguar, and there's phone telephone lines and power lines running down. And then he kind of explains, see, now I know everything, and I can get presidents and scientists and statesmen to talk to each other and then and now i'm i'm mortal now right i can have kids and i can live and die like you and then there's another voiceover by sean connery again and then it and then they kiss or whatever and then it's just kind of over that's it yeah that's it so i mean you knew he was gonna win you wanted him to win and he does and then his prize was now I'm just like everybody else. I mean, except obviously a lot smarter is omniscient, apparently. But uh, yeah, it's it's. I don't know. It's kind of like after two hours, you don't really want anymore. Uh, there's nothing more for him to do. But I guess that's where the the cultness of it came into. Like we could tell more of this story. Obviously, what happens now that there's no one else to fight? Now that he has all this knowledge and can have a life, now what happens? Yeah, th I think that was really the problem with the script of this movie, is that it's open-ended on both sides. You know, like you said, what's going to happen to him from now until, I guess, he would die naturally, but also what happened to him between the time that you met him and present-day New York? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, and it was a, since it was a flop at the box office, I'm sure they never, they were like, well, that's never going to happen, so we'll just scrap it. Mm -hmm. Until home video slash HBO picked it up and ran with it, and people just flipped out. And I remember when I saw it, and I said something to somebody, I was like, oh yeah, I love that movie. Like, what, what do you mean you love that movie? And then you start to get into, so everybody's seen this then. Okay, right. well cool then let's talk about it because there's a lot of stuff in there that you can dig into and i remember our our freshman year in college when we learned that there was going to be a sequel like oh man that is awesome now it's not going to have the queen soundtrack obviously because in our freshman year of college freddie mercury died and and so we knew it wasn't going to be quite the same or maybe quite as special but still it's like hey this is awesome they're going to make something new and it just so missed the mark and if you take into account, because they, they made a third one about, it was kind of renamed The Sorcerer with Mario Van Peoples. They had an Endgame one. They had a fifth one that went straight to DVD that I, to this day, still haven't seen. And it's completely mocked by anyone who has seen it. I think the best version of Highlander other than the original movie was the series, the syndicated show starring Adrian Paul as Connor McCloud's cousin. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to tell you I've seen the whole thing of that, but I have seen episodes of it, and you're right. And to all of the stuff that came after it, that is the best. And in Endgame, they kind of play together. You're kind of bringing both worlds together like a Star Trek Generations yeah. kind of thing. But Highlander 2 was such a disappointment. At this point to, to Mulcahy so much he wanted to take his name off it or, or change it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
I remember, I think that was at the Dollar Theater and just walking, I, in fact, I know it was at the Dollar Theater and walking out thinking, well, that was a swing and a miss. Wow. I know it's it's one of the most disappointing, I mean, more so than Phantom Menace, I say. One of the most disappointing sequels in the history you, of ever. Did you ever see the, uh, the, what is it, the Renegade version, which is like the director's cut? Right. I, I hear Russell Mulcahy didn't like the finished version and he wanted to take his name off of it and change it to Alan Smithy because he was that upset about it. But I don't think that I did. It's better, mm-hmm. but it's still like, he, I watched it and I was like, well... Okay, yeah, it's better than the original cut, but it's still not. They should have just left it alone. And then they made the, the next one after that. There was a one like 96 or not, not 96, probably 93 or 94. It was 94 with the, and Mario Van yeah. Peebles. Yeah. It made more sense than the second one, but right. it still wasn't that good. And at that point, I was already burned. And I'm yeah. like, well, okay, you know what? Sometimes you just get lightning in a bottle, and for whatever reason, it works. And you, Don't mess with it. Yeah, you can't recreate it. But the, I mean, the thing of it is, in doing research for this, on a $19 million budget, its theatrical release didn't quite net $13 million. So it lost money. So it wasn't like it was a hit. Now, it has since become a hit, thanks to HBO and, of course, all the rentals back in the day. I didn't see it in the theater back in the day. I'm sure I saw it on HBO if it came out in 86, I probably saw it in like 87 when I was 13 or 14. And remember just saying, wow, these sword fights are really cool. This is better than gunfighting movies are. And the music's cool. Loosely, what it was was because now he knows everything in the world and we're ruining the atmosphere and ruining our climate and all that kind of stuff. He basically helps create the shield, which keeps the ultraviolet ways from heating up the earth and killing everything, right? But it kind of creates this black cloud so that we never really see the sun again. And then the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation is the biggest corporation in the world because every country in the world has to pay them to protect them from the sun. And then he's older. He has aged, right? But then another immortal, Michael Ironside, comes back. He's probably most famous from Top Gun. Allegedly, he was almost RoboCop. If you ever see the Netflix special... The movies that made us. There's a great one on RoboCop where Michael Ironside was almost RoboCop. Huh. But he wanted a, like a harem of women or something like that. Like he wanted Robo Whores, but something. That <laughs> So they, they got Pete, what, Peter, what's his name, instead? Peter Weller. Peter Weller did a great job. So he comes back, and then somehow, <laughs> somehow Sean Connery comes back, which didn't make any sense either. I mean, it, well, it was weird. Apparently the deal was that they were they got along so well that, that Lambert said, Lambert said, I'll only do the movie if Connery comes back. Yeah, so it's like, what? And then I guess the deal was that they, the insurance company showed up in South America, wherever they were filming this, and like, what is going on? down here you spent a zillion dollars on this movie you're you're constantly filing for overages on this you're done you're done filming this whatever so they kind of had to cobble it together and now they're from another planet and right (laughs) yeah okay yeah it was i remember walking out it was the dollar theater and we walked out and i thought what a complete like that like the first one had holes in it but I can live with it. Mm-hmm. This one was so bad. I was like, I can't. I don't even. I don't know what you were trying to do. I don't understand this. This was bad. And now I'm a little sad for the first one. Right. And the movies 
and shows that came later ignore it. Like yes. it ignores stuff from the first film, and then every film after or show after ignores the second one, basically, and kind of adheres back to the original script. Thank goodness, I guess. But the second one fairly well bombed too. I mean, it didn't make any money either. I think it helped propel the stock of the first one. I think it propelled a lot of VHS sales and rentals of the first movie and maybe some laser discs. I don't think that DVDs were available at the time when the second one came out. But there have been more releases over the years, anniversary releases, 10-year releases, stuff that comes with CDs and more Queen songs on it, stuff that comes with interviews and stuff like that. So the cult following, because it is good science fiction, fantasy, the quick cut MTV kind of shooting by Mulcahy is iconic now. It was new at the time, and I read some reviews were like, you're going to be nauseous if you watch this too long because it cuts so much. It's like, no, it's like an episode of Miami Vice, man. It's 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 kind of right. cool, really. And, and of course, it, it kind of started the genre of that. And if you spawn, no matter how bad they are, you know, four more movies plus a TV series plus an animated series, not to mention people who like to collect swords and stuff like that, the replicas are always hot. You, you can get replicas of the McLeod sword or the Katana sword or whatever, and the originals sell for tens of thousands of dollars. So and it is kind of cool, too, because kind of like Star Wars, where they've gone back and, and retconned a lot of the, or not retconned, but written a lot of books to explain things. They've done that, too. Like, I think there's a whole thing about the, you know, there are books about what happened to him in between. Like, I guess he went to Japan after leaving Scotland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they have a little more background on the Kurgan and what he was up to. So you definitely have built its own little world that people want to live in and expand. Well, that's right. And it continues to this day because Ryan Condal, who wrote a, a series called Colony, a sci-fi kind of futuristic series called Colony. He did Hercules, I think, with Dwayne Rock Johnson. He is writing and producing the Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon, here in London. And I bumped into him the other day. Didn't know who he was, really. And, you know, we kind of just get to talk. He's like, oh, you're from LA. Oh, yeah, you work in you know, the movies or whatever. And he talked about how he was working on Game of Thrones prequel. And I'm like, God, I have to apologize because I never watched Game of Thrones. But now... I get to watch your prequel, and then I can watch it after, so that's great. He has a podcast called The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of, that he and his buddy, who's like a producer and writer, he did Seinfeld and Veep, they collect a lot of screen-used items, and he especially likes weapons and swords. Oh, right. And, you know, he's got like a Stormtrooper helmet that they can screen match from like Empire or something like that, and... He's like, it's kind of a neat podcast in that it says, unlike, say, sports card or, or, or authentic collecting that, that I like, where you want it as pristine and perfect as possible. Sometimes like the Knicks or like the paint or something like that, that's the stuff that really shows that it was used. And if you can get a screenshot that shows it in that exact place, screen match it, the value skyrockets. Right, because they probably made, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen of those McLeod swords to be used by stunt people in the movie and stuff like that. But if you can get one that has a nick in the right place that was actually used in the film, that's, you know, 20x. And like sports cards and sports valuables, in the last year and a half, stuff like that, authentic movie stuff, has been skyrocketing too. And so they talk about their collections, stuff that's coming up for auction. I think he's got some cool Batman stuff. I think he's got an Indiana Jones screen-used fedora, which is pretty cool, you know. He's got a rifle from Alien. And I wonder, because I think Mulcahy 
had the original Kurgan sword, at least the one that maybe came in the briefcase. Maybe he sold it at auction, I don't know. But I wonder if Ryan has, or knows who does have, the katana or one of the, you know, like the original McLeod sword, because that would be really cool. I did invite him to come on the show because he did write a script for the reboot of Highlander. But when that didn't work out, for whatever reason, come over here to make this House of the Dragon show instead. I think the whole thing got shut down and he was thrown out with with everything, which is too bad. I bet it's a great script. He's really busy making this Game of Thrones prequel right now. But they, um, they lined up Henry Cavill of Superman and Witcher fame to be the lead in this new Highlander picture. So, okay. Yeah, so right. he's he's handsome, he's athletic, he'd make a great swordsman. That's that's pretty cool. So, but it's awfully early, still very much in pre-production. And so my my question was, do you think it's harder to reboot Game of Thrones, which is this runaway huge gigantic hit, but not from that long ago. And and now you're going before, not after. You're doing a prequel, not a follow-up. Prequel to what happened before that. Is that harder because the audience is so big and so rabid? Or is it harder to do the new Highlander, which has this long, long history and so many missteps since the original? Which of those do you think it's it's harder to be true to the fan base on? Oh, are you asking me? I'm asking you. This is, okay, oh, I, would say, I would say the latter because it, to your point, Game of Thrones, you're not, it, this isn't Game of Thrones. This is another thing before it. It's part of the world, but not that. Mm-hmm. If you're rebooting the first movie, yeah, that's a, those are big shoes to fill. Number one, it was a long time ago. So you've had so many people like us who've watched it a thousand times. I mean, this, that's going to be it. That, that would be the tougher hill to climb up, I think. Because no matter what, people are going to crap on it. Oh, you should have done this. You should have done that. You know, oh, you miscast this person. So I think that would be the harder one. I agree with you. But that's easy for me to say because I don't know Game of Thrones. I'm not like a huge fan. I can't wait to see the new one because I'm sure it'll be super cool. I, the only reason I didn't get in the old one, look, it's on HBO. It's about medieval times, fantasy, sword fighting. should be right up my alley. They, like, killed Sean Bean in, like, the first one. I'm like, hey, Sean Bean's my guy. You're killing him that early? Screw you guys. I'm not watching this. Um, and that's really the only reason. Um, and I always said, you know, eventually I'll watch it. Eventually I'll get into it. I didn't watch Breaking Bad for however many years. Then when I did, I, I ripped through it. So, I'm like, I've got time. I'll, I'll get to it eventually. I say Highlander, and I don't know that it's a reboot of the first one. I don't know if they're trying to remake the first one. I don't know if they're just trying to continue the story, tell a different Highlander story. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they even know yet. But to me, because it is from so long ago, there's so many years, and you can use Clancy Brown in it in some role, not as the Kurgan, obviously, but he can have a role. A lot of the people who are in the first one can be in it in some way, and that would be cool. And so how do you move the story forward while being true to the original, but being something brand new, I feel like that's tough. Whereas, you know, Game of Thrones, it's all going to be kind of the same world. They're made pretty close together. It's not 35 years later. It's like 10, you know, or something like that since the first season or whatever. So it's obviously that's going to be a bigger hit, but he's already got HBO lined up for that. You know, it's it's obvious where it's going to go. There's not going to be just one series, season of it. Obviously, they're going to have several seasons of it. It's going to be a hit. 
and there's going to be plenty of it. Whereas you can really hit and miss, obviously, with Highlander, because the first one didn't even hit that big. It's just people eventually found it's like, no, this is actually pretty good. And then a lot of ups and downs in the series after that. So now, is this is the Highlander thing going to be a movie or is it going to be a series? Because I think you it, mentioned The Witcher, and mm-hmm. I was like, man, whatever. I guess I'll watch this. It was pretty good. He was really good in that. He's it was good, a good isn't deal. he? It would be if you did a series, you'd have more time to expand the individual stories. Like you know, now we're going to tell a story about how he was in World War Two or mm-hmm. World War One or the feudal Japan or whatever. That would be kind of cool, like a series of his adventures or something. Would be cool, but I, I think it's a picture. I think it's a motion okay. picture. I think it's a movie. But we'll see. You know, we'll see. I mean, look, I wish him a lot of success, obviously, with House of Dragon. I think it's going to be a huge hit. It's probably going to be awesome. You know? Well, yes, that does wrap up our review of the film Highlander and a little talk about the sequels at the end. But now we want to transition into the fun part that I know a lot of people are excited about. It was a lot of fun for us. And that's our interview with Ryan Condal, the executive producer, showrunner, creator, head writer of the Game of Thrones prequel coming out in 2022, House of the Dragon. And yes, he did write a screenplay for a Highlander reboot. It didn't work out that way for him, but he talks a little bit about it here on our interview with him. So let's go ahead and jump into it with Ryan Condal because he's a great guy, he's got great stories to tell, and he's passionate about his movies, his shows, and the props that he talks about on his incredible podcast, The Stuff the Dreams Are Made Of. So let's jump in with Ryan now. So hey, We want to welcome to the podcast Ryan Condal, a writer and producer and showrunner who's done some amazing stuff like Hercules, like Rampage, like the show Colony that I I hope everyone has taken a look at at some point here. He's worked on some other things, but right now is in the middle of a little project for HBO called House of the Dragon. And Ryan, thanks for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, guys. So just to kind of set it up a little bit, if you've heard our show, we talk about rock and roll music. It's our kind of our thing. I do. Um, and I, I have to say, I agree with everything you said about Metallica's Black Album. It was all correct. Well, good. We appreciate you listening. Thank you. <laughs> and of course, as you know, because you run a great podcast yourself, the stuff the dreams are made of with your friend David. Thank you. You know how important it is to get downloads and to get those five-star reviews. So I'm sure you'll be downloading all of ours at some point here shortly. Um, yes, of course. Um, but because we're, we're born in the early 70s. So seeing things, we saw Star Wars on its first run when we were four and five years old. And we anticipated Empire coming out in 1980 and then went to see this new Spielberg Lucas property called Raiders of the Lost Ark when we were like eight or nine years old. But you're a little younger than us. So can you tell us a little bit about what has drawn you to sci-fi, at what age it kind of captured your imagination, which films kind of did it for you in your introduction to some of these properties? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... For me, I mean, I was part of the VHS generation, certainly. Mm-hmm. So I think that that, you know, is a distinct time because really the, even though VHS came out in the 70s, it really didn't come into, it wasn't in everybody's home and really until the 1980s when all the players and, the, and more importantly, the, the cassettes got cheaper. So for me, I mean, I, though I grew up in the 80s, I was really, you know, growing up on VHS more than I was growing up in the movie theater. I mean, we went to the movie theater, certainly, but the ability to watch and rewatch things again and again and again. And having control over that was certainly controlled, you know, in my home when I was young. Sure. So the only, you know, the only 
Star Wars movie I ever saw in the theater was Return of the Jedi. I was very young. My, you know, my dad took me when I was a little kid because I loved the the first two that came before that, which I was too young to see in the theater. But I had watched them a million times on 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 VHS. So mm-hmm. though I'm at the very tail end of Generation X, I really grew up with all the stuff that that Generation X feasted on in, in the movie theater. Though I saw it on on at home. And that's what we kind of talk about in part one of our Highlander is that we, like most Highlander fans, did not see it in the theater during the first run. But thanks sure. to HBO or the Sunday afternoon movie or Blockbuster, then like you say, not only can you rent it, but you can watch it three or four times while you have it, right? So it's not just, oh, I saw the movie. No, you can dive into it and look at the little details and get to know the characters better. Is that how you came to Highland? Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was part of my sort of, uh, the, the video store down the street from us was called Video Madness. It was a it was a short bike ride away, you know, all very all kind of very charmingly eighties and Spielbergian, and um, they uh, you know I would just go in there and just go you know sift through the action or the science fiction science fiction fantasy section of the store and just rent sort of a movie a week. I mean, we would, it was kind of a tradition. We would go go down every Friday night or Saturday night and rent and rent movies, and the kids would get the movie and my parents would get a movie and we, we would watch and then re, you know, return at some point the next week. So I slowly made my way through all that stuff, everything that my parents would allow me to, to rent. Of course. Because of course, anything anything with a letter R on it became much more enticing than uh, those those uh, pesky PG-13 movies, which I believe the original Highlander is R, right? Because we're, we're chopping heads off people. So that's, that's correct. R-rated. Yeah, so that was definitely a, you know, that was definitely a hill to climb and something I was very into. And, and uh, certainly my dad my dad enjoyed having to um, preview films before I could get to see them to make sure that it was uh, it was just just violence and not sex that I was that I was seeing because right. uh, that's American puritanism for you. But yeah, I mean, I actually don't remember when I saw Highlander for the first time. I mean, my guess it was probably a few years after release. It was probably when I was in like middle school or something. So it was mm-hmm. probably like late '80s, early '90s. So it was, first Highlander was like '86, right? Was, that's uh, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So so it was it was probably you know it was probably in context of the sequels being around that I saw the original. Cause I, I very clearly remember seeing again, not in the theater, but I very clearly remember my first exposure to Highlanders, one of the sequels. It was the one where, uh, and I always remember it's such a great, such a great moment in the scene when, when um, I believe that, the two of them are in the car and it crashes through the building and they get riddled with bullets. And at the end, they sort of a la Gimli and Legolas and Lord of the Rings compare bullet hit counts and, and talk about how many times I got hit. Is that the quickening? Is that two? Yes, Where that's that the second one. Yeah. Correct. So I just, what a great moment. I mean, what a great, you know, great exploitation of the concept of, of, uh, of immortals who, you know, can't, aren't, aren't bothered by being, you know, hit by a hundred bullets. And uh, that was just like, okay, that was cool. These guys are immortal. That's neat. You know, feed, feed me more. So I probably saw, I probably saw two first and then went, went back and saw one. But of course, what's not to like, you have, you have Kurgans, you have samurai swords, you have Sean Connery, you know, James Bond was in it, which was super cool to me. Also Indiana Jones' dad. That's right. Really liked that, that part. The music was, was awesome and very 1980s. Very um, And uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I just kind of liked everything you know, liked everything about it. I, I, I love the, I love the underlying mythology of it too. Like wondering mm. what, what these people are and what purpose they have on earth and what brought them here. And, and all that stuff that I think is really kind of deftly handled in the first one, because it's, it's sort of left unsaid, which is what I think makes that an enduring fascination. I think we, today we get too deep into kind of explaining every little <laughs> thing behind, behind the mythos in a movie. And in the, in the seventies and eighties, the stuff that we all grew up on directors, writers, uh, studios even were more content to just sort of leave that stuff to the imagination a little bit not 
not feel the need to explain every last detail and leave it leave it up to us to wonder a bit. That's right. I think you're right. I mean, the only thing we really knew about Star Wars going to Star Wars was the role they they had. Episode four. There's a you know it's a tough time right. for the rebellion. And why is that? That's it. Why That's all four? we get. What have the other three? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that threw us off, of course. But those yeah. three small paragraphs, that's all the lead up. That's all we understand about the world. And I think that has to do with the internet today. They want to know every tiny little detail and being able to go back and examine every little shot of film and say, well, what was this here? What's this sitting on the shelf? Is there any hidden meaning right. behind that? You know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So when you go into creating a world the way you're doing now on House of Dragon or any any property, any film or, or show that you might be working on, what are you looking to do? You know, when you're building the foundation, what are you putting in and what are you leaving out? Yeah, I mean that that's that's always the that's always the trick, and I think I think these you know these these giant worlds they do create they do demand a certain amount of exposition, but and look every movie. Exposition is a necessary tool for storytelling. Exposition is in every movie, <laughs> in every uh, whether it's whether it's a, a sword and sorcery film or whether it's just a standard legal drama. There's a ton of there's a ton of information that needs to be communicated to the audience. So exposition is a necessary evil of of writing. The challenge to the writer and what makes it fun is how do you how do you dress it up? How do you disguise it so that it's it can be um, you know fed into the audience in, in a way where our parents used to to hide the medicine in, inside the applesauce. You know you, you mix it into something else. <laughs> So that it's delivered in a way where you're you're not violating the contract that you have with the audience, which is that you know I'm I'm going to create a fully immersive world for you, and I'm not I, I'm not going to break the fourth wall. I'm not I'm not going to we all we're all aware that we're watching a we're watching a a the facade of something or what you know this is this is a construct that we're watching. But the the, the contract that you have as a, as a writer with your audience, and then the audience also has coming back to you with your writers, like we're all going to suspend disbelief. We're all going to we're all going to buy into this thing together as long as we all play by the rules. And when bad exposition is delivered, <laughs> um, well, as you know, the force is a uh, the force is an energy field that surrounds us and penetrates us. You know, the reason that exposition works in, in Star Wars is because. Obi-Wan is telling Luke for the first time. So Luke is hearing it for the first time as the same as we are. So just as we're leaning forward going, oh my God, this sounds awesome. Luke is doing the same thing because it's in his world and he can't believe what he's hearing uh, in a good way. So I think with any, with really with any, with any movie, the trick is to, is to feed that stuff in gently so that the audience, you, you, you're never making them aware that they're living and in, living inside this construct. And I think personally, I think that, you know, that's, that's one of the big, the big tricks of writing. And it's got to be tricky for you coming into something that already has a world built, right? You're going back, I think it's 200 years before, but you've got a lot of stakeholders. You've got fans who demand it a certain way. You have George R.R. Martin who needs it to be true to what he's written. You've got HBO that has certain demands. So, I mean, how do you avoid your own personal Jar Jar Binks moment? Which I know you um, will, by the way. I'm just, you know, throwing it out there. I love Jar Jar. <laughs> uh, you know, I, um, I, uh, I mean, look, I, I will say it's, it's my. I've made my whole career on writing these things, so mm-hmm. this is one of the things that I'm pretty, you know, I've, I've gotten pretty good at and pretty, I'm pretty confident about. I will say that the job on House of the Dragon was actually much easier than it would have been had I been creating the original, original series. I mean, all credit to David and Dan, and also, you know, George having come before me. They did all this work for me. So I don't have to say, I don't have to explain anything about, you know, what a Targaryen is mm-hmm. or what Westeros is or what an Iron Throne is. 
there's a lot of things that have the heavy lifting has been has been done in many ways this is like if when Kazan came in and wrote Empire Strikes Back mm-hmm. there is that much more shorthand that he had with the audience versus what Lucas did in the first movie it's the first thing that's always the hardest because it's like here's this new world it's Harry Potter you know what the hell is a muggle what's a wizard what's Hogwarts <laughs> what, all that work gets when that work is cleverly done in the first go as it was by David and Dan for the for the you know for the TV going audience the work of the person who follows becomes that much easier so yes there is exposition in the series because you have to be settled into the new timeline that they're wearing and also with these characters and the things that they're dealing with and all that but so much of that heavy lifting has already been done that the audience coming in knows knows what that stuff is so you can you can cleverly sort of feather in things and reference things and they will pick it up and carry it on the way i mean really also one of the biggest jobs of, of a writer and and as a studio and as a, as a filmmaker is you really have to trust your audiences audiences are really smart and they they want it to be an interactive experience they don't want to be spoon-fed everything they want to have to lean forward in their chair and listen and put things together and say oh i know what what that is and that's that's what makes them engage with your work so it has to be accessible because if it's inaccessible you just lose everybody sure but the trick is walking that balance and figuring out how the, the least amount of information possible to carry people along the way and to me that's that's really the the hard part about what you do is how do you how do you convey that like you said in the least amount possible so you understand what's going on as a viewer but it's not you're not getting hit over the head okay we understand i get that that's his brother or you know i understand this is why they're doing that let's talk a little bit about your podcast the stuff dreams are made of because it's a lot of yeah. fun i, I love listening Thanks to for it. listening <laughs> no yeah well, of course you know it, it's teaching me about a world that i love but don't know a lot about and it's fascinating to me that the prices and the market has really changed dramatically in the last 18, 24 months because I do a little Tell bit of it. sports memorabilia collecting and some oh, cool. you know, card collecting that I was into as a kid. I got back into it as an adult, and it has done the exact same thing the last 18 to 24 months. Things have skyrocketed, and I just wonder if if you think this was a change that needed to happen, like things were always a little underpriced, and now they're getting to where they should be, or certain things will always have more value, but the, maybe the rest of the market will trail off at some point. To equate it to sports stuff, it's not a shock to me that Mickey Mantle and Michael Jordan and LeBron James cards are firing up, because they're the all-time greats, but are the kids who are coming out of college now who are the hottest rookies right now, should their cards be trading at TEDx, what the average rookie out of college was two years ago? Because we just don't know yet if they're going to make it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that's one thing I will say in, in favor of the, the things that I collect is that they're, they're always, it's always a rarity. You know, even something, even something like a, like a Stormtrooper helmet, which is a very sought after piece. It's kind of the, it's kind of the, the key A piece from, from Star Wars and most, most crazy slash serious Star Wars collectors that I know have a Stormtrooper helmet because there are probably 30 of them, maybe 20 to 30 of them in private hands. And there were, there were probably 20 to 30 made for the first film, fewer in the second film because you don't see many Stormtroopers. And then there was probably, I don't know, 50 or a hundred made for the, for Return of the Jedi when it was a really big budget production in Island. Had, had taken over and was making them. Okay. Uh, but that doesn't mean those are all in private hands or available. A lot of those are in the archives, they're in museums, they're they're probably in, in George Lucas's house somewhere. Right. But in terms of things that are around, there's they are they are around. But there's only ever going to be 20 or 30 of them. So it's it's still a rarity. Whereas sports card, for me, you know, Mickey Mantle's jersey or baseball bat is always going to be much more interesting than his than his famed rookie card. I mean, anybody that, you know, I also grew up 
collecting baseball cards and knew all that stuff. The Mickey Mantle rookie card was was the was the holy grail. It was right. the ruby slippers of of that world. That or you know kind of Honus Wagner, but even that was that was more a throwback because everybody knew who Mickey Mantle was. There was there was there was film footage of Mickey Mantle. There's no right. film footage. Our dads talked about Wagner. Mickey Mantle. Yes. Yeah, and our dads right exactly all that. So with you know with what I collect, it's the it's the it's the rarity of it that I think keeps keeps it strong and keeps it interesting. And it's it always it always surprised me again, having come from the world of baseball cards and comic books, where even a rare book, even a Amazing Fantasy fifteen, Spider Man's first appearance, there was a, it was a mass produced object. Sure. So yes, many were lost, and lots of mothers throwing out son's comic book collection, the famed story. Uh, of all that, but it was still a mass-produced thing. Whereas uh, Harrison Ford's whip from Indiana Jones, there was oh, there was only a, a finite number of those made. There was only a finite number of number of those that made it out into private hands, and that will see see the light of day after. So yes, it, and to answer your original question, it does kind of surprise me that things stayed where they were, at, you know, as sort sort of niche. And I mean, it was always expensive, sure. but but. Given that there's a such a huge collector's market, I would always look at things like movie posters. You know, a Casablanca movie poster sold in the last year for like 300k or something like that. A movie poster, right. which is absolutely great. Again, another mass-produced object that very few of those have survived, but it's something that was that was produced and that wasn't associated with the original filming. So when you weigh up that versus, say, Humphrey Bogart's trench coat from the movie, I mean, what you know, what is the rare artifact? What's more interesting? And I think the thing that appeals to us as as film collectors is having the thing that directly connects you into the make the making of the film, the thing that was actually you know in the movie on screen used by the actor that was not meant for a private collector, a schmo like me to own you know years later but you know it is and that's what that's what makes it interesting so i think what you're starting to see now over covid and everybody's boredom and not being able to go to fancy resorts in the mediterranean so they turn to collecting instead is that people are kind of keying into that and they're saying like hey you know i've been i have i have all the comic books i ever wanted from when i was a kid i have my my perfect condition amazing fantasy first amazing fantasy 15 and my x-men one what i really want is Harrison Ford's fedora from Indiana Jones, and uh, and there's only there's only a handful of those in existence. So I think I think that's 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 what we're seeing in that world. And I would equate it more in, on your end as a sports member. I would equate it more to the kind of game use stuff mm-hmm. versus the versus the sports cards because the sports cards are the movie posters of, of our world. The movie posters are great. I love them. I have my own movie poster collection, but. The, that's more of a commoditized thing where you always know that essentially, like if you want a rear window poster, which I did and I finally got mine last year, which was awesome. Good for you. I knew what the price range of that was versus condition. And I knew I could kind of sit around and wait for one to fall into that range. Whereas when something that I really want comes up on the memorabilia side, if you want it, you better get it because you're never going to see it again. And that's the way you have to treat every every auction that, come, that comes along, which makes it a little hair-raising, but that's part of the fun of it. And that's part of your show, too, talking about that. And you did a great show on Movie Swords, but you didn't get much into Highlander. And to me, <laughs> it's like, wow, to me, if you think, what's, if you could have one sword from any movie franchise, short of a lightsaber, of course, yeah. uh, what would you, what franchise or what movie would you choose? I'm like, that's easy. Highlander, Highlander. The Kurgan sword that he puts together, which probably yeah. didn't function well, yeah. but, but put together. And I think Mulcahy had that for the longest time. I mean, do you have any of the Highlander stuff or do you know anyone who does have the, the hero screen match stuff? Yeah, yeah. So there's a actually Highlander stuff is out there in pretty good quantity. I mean, again, for for a rare movie prop it's sort of it's that thing like yeah, I def- it's been seen around and there's a bunch of different iterations right so you have first movie stuff and then you have the sequels and then you have the TV show sure. that that came on later all you know 
all, first movie is always typically the most interesting. Like, you know, Highlander, if you're collecting Star Wars, you want something from A New Hope. If you're collecting Indy, you want something from Raiders. It's a, you know, it's, oh, it, that's generally the way, it, the way it goes, unless there's a, unless there's a massive change, like Alien to Aliens, you have Alien collectors and then you have Aliens collectors there because they're, the cast is so different other than Ripley. Oh, right. Those are seen as different, different movies. So, so they're sort of just, just as valuable, I think on either side, but when it's a continuing story of the same cast, generally first movie, it's like first album, you know, if you, you know, everybody kind of defaults to saying the you know, first album is the best. Although I don't think anybody would say that about Kill em All. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, there is Highlander stuff out there. I've actually, I have seen, I have seen evidence of the Kurgan, the case sword, the assembly sword. I know that is out there in private hands. I mean, one of the advantages of that film in particular is because it was kind of independently made. It That stuff didn't go and end up in a studio archive. It just stayed with the people that made the movie, the producer and the director and probably the cat. They Probably everybody just took stuff, cool stuff home. And, you know, like you said, who wouldn't want a Highlander sword? Even if you were making the movie, that thing is a work of art. You know, the, the, the ivory dragon head pommel and it's a katana. And that, I mean, a, anybody would want that. So I think a lot of people end up keeping that stuff and then it's filtered its way out into the auction world. But those, those things are definitely, they've been around. And they, I would say they're gettable. I don't know if first, first film stuff has been around. I, I would imagine that's the most kind of held on to and collectible. But I've seen multiple different versions of, of Kurgan's sword. Rubber, steel, solid. I've seen the d- disassembled one, which, you know, mm-hmm. assembles the cases there. I've seen a full Kurgan uh, costume from head to toe, all completely original from the first film, uh, which is really incredible and uh, and very with intu- the skull armor and all that on there. Uh, yeah, 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 all 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 of that head head to toe. It's really cool. The stuff the stuff from that movie is really cool. Well, the one thing that you brought up on that episode was the the sword versus a gun, and what I thought was really cool was the the and I hadn't really thought about this before a ton, but the sword is really for the character. It, it takes on it, or you it's made for characteristics for the actual character where, where like a dirty hairy gun like that's a Colt 44 you yeah. know Magnum you could just go and buy one of those yeah. but you can't Smith buy and Smith and Wesson that's what I'm sorry yes yeah, Smith and Wesson <laughs> Anaconda I believe is the, is the big version long barrel but uh, yeah and, and so you know yeah the Kurgan has a giant sword because that's his personality just this you know and, yeah. and then the Katana is more refined for the the warrior and so, yeah, just listening to that and the whole thing about how, you know, who is the who is the sword for? Is it for uh, – and they were talking about – you guys were talking about Game of Thrones. Was it a somebody who was more of a lord that wouldn't really use it? It was more ornate or was this a guy who spent his life hacking people to a bits? Tool. Yeah. Yeah. So and, – and like I said, I hadn't thought about that before. And other than like, I don't know, like aliens or like RoboCop, the, the, a lot of the guns are, are less personalized to the character. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part. I think that's really the appeal of of collecting as we do, because so much of in, in a great movie prop, for instance, you know, a, a sword. You know, I have uh, I have owned uh, Conan's original sword from Conan the Barbarian, Killer. Um, which is great. It's one of the best pieces I have, or my favorite pieces. So much of the character is imbued in that sword, right? I mean, that's that's the thing that you're really trying to get, and I think that's that's the thing that makes people gravitate towards certain objects as a collectible versus 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 others is when 
when you can sense the film or the or the character or better both i think in the object that's been made i mean i have i have the i have conan's father's sword as well and i just that that image of his dad making that sword at the top of the film with the you know the kind of the skull pommel and the antlers and the mm-hmm. and the you know, the the hoofed the hoofed pommel that he that he makes it it feels very sumerian in that way it feels very homemade in this northern village where all they know is is war and steel and the, and, and the riddle of steel i think it's the, it's what when you just put that on a table it communicates everything about conan where he's from his family the film john milius the ron cobb design it's all in that piece and there's there's this one thing that's very representative of it. when you see it anybody that sees that movie it immediately starts playing the movie back in your head and i think i think highlander in a, in a very good way all very similar to that there's a just a distinct thing when you see any one of those swords that just sucks you right into highlander and you can hear there can be only one and the quickening and all all of those uh, all of those great moments in the movie it just it just it, it it's an object that that represents those things. And, well, and it goes back to, to you were talking about the being from the VHS days of, of being a kid and you only had a certain number of tapes you had access to. So the ones that you did, you just watched over and over. So you knew what yeah. the sword looked like and you knew at the beginning yeah. and it just imprinted. And I was talking to my father the other day and he asked about, cause I've got a 14 year old and he asked about some movie and I'm like, a lot of the stuff is just too disposable now for kids. Like yeah. you were talking about going to not blockbuster, but the, place around the corner and do video did they have the, yeah. The, yeah did they have the tape that i was looking for oh they didn't all right well i guess i'll just see what they do have here i'll walk but whatever it is i'm watching it though because I, I friday nights saturday nights movie night yeah and that was a big that was a big thing is like that delayed gratifying i mean we now sound like we sound like boomers now <laughs> right. you know shaking our hands of heavens and old man yells a cloud but uh but I mean, it was it was true, and and what I would say in a positive way, when you, the movie you were looking for wasn't in the thing that you grabbed instead, sometimes became one of your favorite movies, and beca- right. because of that experience of not being able to get the thing that you wanted immediately, it opened up these other pathways and made you re- made you love the thing even more, and it also mythologized the thing. Why is why is it out all the time? Why, why, what's what's the what's the hidden secret hiding inside this VHS cassette? And you would you would want to track those things down and, and, and find them. And now I think now just disposability is 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 a big thing, I think, now. And for me it's it's less like, look, the digital library is great. I love going onto iTunes and just being able to look up any old movie from, you know, seventy, eighty years ago and finding it <laughs> in glorious high definition and having it beamed into my house. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem for me is just how much stuff is made every year. I mean, I'm guilty of it myself here making you know making more stuff but it just it it, it's now it's very much okay you watch the thing and then you put it down and you move on to the next one whereas it used to be the summer movie season and you would go and there would be you know six to ten movies released that summer in the genre world you'd probably love two of them and then you'd carry those on into next summer but you'd wait for the vhs to come out and relive that and then wait for next summer and is the sequel going to come and that's going to be three years down the road i just don't i I, with i don't think in this current world you have as much of a sense of that and it's just changed the way this this generation my my daughters are younger but they will be included in it the instant gratification generation will will look at these things now i honestly uh, i don't I don't know, you know, I think people continue to watch filmed entertainment, but I don't know how much of the stuff that's being made now is going to be adored and poured over and researched and mythologized the way that people that, you know, that grew up in the VHS generation like us do do and did. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. And I, 
I will say I, I'm sorry that you won't be doing the Highlander reboot because I would love to see your take on it. But I know doing the I Game of Thrones. I will say that's one of the best scripts I've ever written. I, I just I, I I don't know. It's a shame. It's a bummer. Well, but. Are, are you allowed to talk about? I mean, like when they cast Henry Cavill, I'm like, I think that's a great choice. He's an action star. He's good looking. He will do justice to the role. I don't know. I don't want to get put you in a different spot because maybe you wouldn't have cast him or whatever. But I mean, don't you think that's a good good cast decision? No, he's. I mean, I mean, I'd be. Have they? Is he Connor? Have they even said? I just know he's in the movie. I was wondering, is like, is he the Kurgan? I don't think they've said that quite yet. I don't think they've revealed that much. Yeah, because and look, I also don't know where you know. I know where I took it to. I I worked on it for probably a year, sort of on and off. Did did you know? Did a few drafts of it, and uh, but Lionsgate was in uh, a time of kind of changeover and executives were leaving and, and, and all that. So it was, it, it was a tumultuous, tumultuous time, never a great time to be, gotcha. <laughs> to be developing something. Cause uh, you get to th- get thrown, tend to get thrown out with the bath water as the writer. Sure. So I don't know where they are on it, but I mean, we'll tell you that, you know, the, the story that I was telling was, was very much a, uh, an homage and, a, and a continuation of the original. I think the original is a great example of a movie that's kind of ripe for a remake, which is something that was made and has a kill, absolutely killer concept of, core cult audience to it mm-hmm. great title but probably didn't have the resources that it needed at the time whether that be money or technology to make it fully realize the thing that it could have been sure. and i think now with money and technology behind it now that highlander is such a known title everybody knows what what highlander means which is you know an immortal you know there can be only one chop chop the head off although they're not called highlanders right because the highlander was just that was just they were just right just one to guy Con- to connor so uh, but now it's like it's that thing where it's like a great brand is something that becomes used as a verb <laughs> <laughs> and now a Highlander is, is synonymous with an immortal. So they've done all that hard work. And I think that makes it prime for a remake. So my 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 approach to adaptations is always, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Go in and fix the things that need fixing and and, and leave and honor the stuff that's that's great. And that's that's certainly the, you know, the approach that I took. So, you know, the thing that I did was very much a story, a kind of uh, a, a Western style story okay. uh, told, you know, told about Connor and, and Ramirez and, and, and the Kurgan. Um, now, I'm, now I'm upset because this sounds really good. Yeah, it would have been good. It would have been good. But you'll get your opportunity, I guess, for to do that on Logan's Run. Is that right? So, talk about something oh, that needs God. a reboot. Yeah, another another one that another one that I worked on. I worked on that movie for a really long time. Another draft that I'm quite proud of. But I, I think that's moved on. And you know, Logan's Run to me is a, a more more complicated adaptation. I think this is the reason that you know when I got hired on that project, Joel, Joel Silver told me he's been trying to. He was a producer on on Logan's Run. He had been trying to make Logan's Run since before the Matrix. That's how long he had been trying to remake wow. Logan's Run. And it's just it's a, it's a it's a great title and a great concept mm-hmm. and then everything after that becomes problematic it's a movie filled with children but you don't want it to be a young adult movie children young people right. but you don't want it to be young adult you don't want it to be a a uh, you know a, a Hunger Games or something like that where you're trying to I mean obviously you want it to be successful as Hunger Games but you don't want it to be a book where you're starring a bunch of children where you're trying to sell it sell it to adults so how do you do that do you age mm. them up how, what do you do how do you do that and also it's a completely fabricated world so there is no there is no real it's a, it's under the dome it, it lives in this it lives in this you know f- futurescape that d- you can't go shoot on location really right. you have to build this thing and that's hugely expensive and how do you do that is it virtual is it real where do you build it what do you do 
so I think that one's more more challenging, more problematic. And I think I think it's it's a wonderful title, which is why Warner has been has been interested in remaking it for so long. But I think they always come up on the same thing, which is this is a really expensive go at something that wasn't particularly successful when it first came out. It was it's cultish, like there are there is a cult following to it, but that was not a booming successful franchise the way other things were that were remade from that same period, like Battlestar. Uh, you know, not Star Wars was remade, but continued on in sequel, sequel form. You always have the underpinning of the success of the original, whereas Logan's Run was really not in the, in the first go around. What about your podcast, The Stuff Your Dreams Are Made Of? I know you're kind of on a break now because you both have heavy-duty production schedules, but yeah. is that something you're going to continue to do for years to come, you'd like to do? Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, you know, we're, we're, uh, Dave and I are still in, in production. Dave, uh, Dave is now uh, in post. I'm, I'm in the you know, final stretches of, of physical production here. But then we both have long post periods ahead of us. We're just both really busy. Uh, we love to do it. We're going to come back. It's just a question of when and how and, and doing this with you know not by coastally but like by by country <laughs> with him in LA and me and me in the UK it's just you know the, sch- the schedule and all that it just makes it a little tricky so so we just we just need to figure it out so it doesn't become it should be a an outlet first versus a point of stress and uh, the, as as you guys probably know with, with podcasts it starts out as an outlet and then <laughs> and then it's at some at some point you're chasing a deadline and then it becomes incredibly stressful and uh, you're you're recording at midnight and saying what the hell am I doing with my life so we don't we don't want to end up there we're familiar <laughs> on the we, next we go know. Around. Yeah. Well, well, the great the great part about your podcast is it, it's two. It's it, it, I see a lot of similarities between between Mac and I. It's just two you know friends who are talking about things that they're passionate about, and you can really hear the passion come out when you're talking about you know the collectibles and the story that you were telling about the about trying to track down the the helmet, the stormtrooper helmet, yeah. and the guy possibly had a chest and thinking to myself. He's got. I mean, I understand you're telling me the story now, and you made it out. But I mean, he, this guy's going to end up in the back of a trunk or something in that far. in that very trunk. <laughs> yeah, I could have exactly. been in there. Just exactly. oh yeah, just look inside. It's like the uh, you know, it's like uh, it's like Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs. No, it's down. Yeah, yeah it's down in the basement. Can you no, just help going. me put the couch in the trunk. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you just get in the back. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it could have totally been that, but I survived and uh, and got out of there. And honestly, it was it was worth it for a chance at a stormtrooper helmet. So. Right, absolutely. But it, but it's just to hear <laughs> to hear that you know you're I'm on the edge of my seat thinking like could I could I get caught up in something like that? Yeah, I mean if I felt like it was something I really wanted, really felt passionately about, yeah, I probably could end up you know talking to this guy about this deal. I mean, obviously you don't need, you don't need to do the podcast. It's just great to hear somebody talk about a a passion that they have in their life that I'm not really into movie memorabilia, mostly because it's out of my stratosphere, but to hear that just the it's not like you just you say to yourself, "Oh, I just saw it and I bought it." No, I mean, you do your research, you say, "Oh, I this thing if this could be real. I don't know." It's yeah, a great window we can't, into that world. Yeah, even though we can't play in the auction, play in the game, we love Star Wars. You know, we, yeah. we 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 love to see stormtrooper helmets. We can imagine if the grills were done differently and you can screen match that, how excited you would be to find this is the one I got that one. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's great. It's it, it is all consuming in a way. But that's I mean, you know, honestly, even even the stories of defeat all kind of make their way into the greater tale of, of it's it's the story of being a collector. And not not that you look forward to those things, but once you've gotten past it and taken your Tylenol and recovered <laughs> from the emotional pain of it, I think it, it just becomes part of the, the fun story. I mean, that really is. Even though it's a story of defeat, it's one of the best stories that I have. <laughs> As a, as a collector, because it went on oh, just so long. 
Well, Ryan, we want to be respectful of your time. We really appreciate you being on. We, we could talk to you about this stuff for hours and hours. And I know that you're working today and Jackson's got to go to work here shortly too. But we really appreciate it. And hey, maybe we could have you on again sometime, like maybe after the show comes out or when it's about to. Thank you. Yes, let's let's do that. Like after production would be would be great when I when I have more of a leisurely time. But uh, no, this was this was great fun. And like I said, I mean, I, I also, you know, I was also a child of the cassette deck generation. So I listened to it. Um, I was a metalhead. Uh, nice, self-confessed metalhead. So I grew up on all that stuff, and uh, and I did. I was scrolling through uh, your your podcast too to figure out what was the best thing. I saw the Black Album come up. It's the 30th anniversary of the Black Album. It That's was right. time. I listened to it, and I, I really loved it. So so uh, so keep keep it up, guys. Thank you. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Awesome. That is so great, man. Cannot thank you enough. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, great talking, guys. Thank I you, sir. Uh, Have a good day. See you soon. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was fun, Jackson. That was that was cool. That guy's a real good dude. Mm-hmm. Like I said, that that pisses me off now because it sounds like what he was going to do with that would have been really good. Oh, it would have been awesome. It would have been awesome. I wonder if he'll ever let me read the script sometime. Maybe if I don't take it from his house, maybe. But that would be amazing to hear that. Yeah, yeah, just to see what his vision was for because because it, it sounds like he really understands that. Don't if it's not broke, don't mess with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just kind of smooth out the rough edges. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I wish him all the success with House of the Dragon, although I don't think he's going to need it from me. I think no. it's going to be a yeah. pretty big hit uh, in its own right. So we'll look forward to that in 2022 for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I can't. I, I've now... I. Because of all of this, I'm going to have to go and watch Game of Thrones just so I can go back and watch The House of the Dragon. Like you said, I think if you just watch that, The House of the Dragon, you're going to be a little lost because he's not going to – he's going to assume you've already seen Game of Thrones and have all that exposition already. But see, this was going to be my chance to prove that procrastination can work, right? Because I've been putting off watching Game of Thrones all these many years. And then I'm like, okay, well, now there's a prequel. So I can watch the prequel and that will lead me into Game of Thrones. So it pays off. But now I think I'm going to have to watch Game of Thrones so I can speak the language of the prequel. Right, right. And understand who, yeah, who these different, well, not people because they're not going to have the same characters, but the same, I guess, houses. Mm -hmm. Same world. Yeah, yeah, and how it works together. But yeah, I can't even imagine that, though. Like, he was talking about, like, oh, the Logan's run was going to be expensive to put on. What do you think this is? I mean, this isn't like just go out on the street and, you know, walk past these cars. I mean, they have to build this entire world. Well, that's the thing he was telling me. He's like, the reason we're here is because if we need a church backdrop, they've got a lot of them here in England. You know, we you yeah. want angel statues. We've got them around here. We're going to build a lot of our own armor and stuff, yes, but we can go to a museum or we can go to a private collection here in England to see what they look like so that we can base our designs off some real stuff, you know, and uh, and, and that's pretty cool to me. Super nice guy, and I certainly wish him all success, and I hope stuff dreams are made of that people continue to listen to that because it's a neat look into a world that a lot of people are fascinated with but don't know a whole lot about. Right, and and they kind of drop you in in the middle. Like you have to, you have to kind of keep up too because they're not it, – it's basically – it's kind of like this. Like it's just dropped into a conversation. Mm-hmm. So you need to keep up. They're not going to explain everything to you. 
but yeah, like he was talking about that. Did you listen to that one about the about the stormtrooper helmets and absolutely? He met, I'm like, again, I know you were all right because you're telling the story, but it really seemed like for a while, yeah, you were going to end up at the bottom of the Buffalo Bill. Well, I know, I know. big fat person. What was <laughs> what was also fascinating to me about their stuff is because we're talking about comparing it to sports memorabilia, certainly to a, a card. If something is nicked up. Uh, or has a, a, a piece of pen mark on it or something like that, that dramatically decreases the value. But if you find a Stormtrooper helmet that has like a little piece of paint on it or has certain scratches on it, you would think, well, does that make it less valuable? Well, no, because that's the distinctive features that you can use to match it to its use in the film on screen. They call it screen matching and can take something that, okay, maybe instead of a Stormtrooper helmet being worth $10,000. Now maybe it's worth 10 times that or whatever it is. Yeah, and then there's the whole thing about how there are things... Well, I mean, okay, so the, the Holy Grail is the screen match. It was on... It was actually used... And then there's the stuff they didn't... They it, For whatever reason, like, they had it, they didn't... It was an extra or something, okay. Yeah, they used but it then, to practice with it, a prop sword kind of thing, whatever. Right. And then they were talking about, like, especially in the new Star Wars, the J.J. Abrams one, there were things that were made as, like, gifts... For mm-hmm. people, like uh, they were saying, like they had made a couple of those uh, chess boards from the Millennium Falcon, but never to be used on as a gift to like the director. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like if you get something like that, you know, it's not originally, you know, it wasn't used in the film, but it was made for the film. It does that kind of get twisted up down the line? You know, would somebody else get it and be less than forthcoming about the actual? origin of this well, thing yeah. it's well, like, it's oh, about God. providence right it's about providence yeah. and if they gave one to jj abrams probably we're going to be able to track that it was jj abrams and he had it and he had it in his house and then he had it in storage and then his kids decided to sell it tracking the providence of all these things is an important part of of understanding its value and what to bid on and things like that and then there, there was the whole thing about how there, there was a guy who was uh, i think it was stormtrooper helmets but it was like he was trying to pass them off as being hmm. in the film, even though he had made them originally. And so if he had taken them and just said, OK, I just made this now, but it's exactly – I mean he could have sold them for a ton of money mm-hmm. had he been forthcoming with the um, – this wasn't any, didn't have anything to do with the movie. But I made it for the movie. This is an exact replica. You won't get this anywhere else. Here, you know, a couple hundred bucks or a thousand dollars or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. I don't know what mm-hmm. it would cost you, but it's that whole, like you said, the whole like, oh, this was in the movie. What was it? Come yeah. on. Very, very rare items they're talking about. I mean, I think he was talking about Indy's fedora. I think he has one, man. Yes, I think he does. That I haven't gotten to that that episode yet, but I think that, and I think it was from the Last Crusade, I believe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but then the other thing he was talking about too, like. I don't know, and, and maybe this is just me. If I was one of these like actor dudes, I would have everything I ever had in any of these movies. I don't care. Because he was saying sometimes, too, like you get the certificate of authenticity or it's signed or something. Sure. These guys don't know. They don't know. Even if it's the actor, like I don't know if that was the hat I wore in the deal or exactly. if it was something you bought yeah. off the rack. But yeah, I would have this massive collection. But maybe some of these guys just don't care. They're like, whatever, it's just a movie. I don't care. Well, and I wonder now that Ryan is working on a property that is going to be incredibly popular, incredibly successful, and is going to have a lot of swords and weaponry in it. Is he doing his best 
not just to, to five-finger them into his own collection, but to take care of the provenance, make sure they are set aside properly and, and marked, hey, this was what we used in episode six, scene three, or whatever, to make sure that collectors down the line uh, will have the opportunity to make sure that what they're buying from House of the Dragon is authentic. Yes, I would hope so. But from what I've heard on that sword episode, what he wants, he's going to keep. He's already got a couple of pieces like the choice... Good for him. Good for him. Yeah, because I, I honestly I would do exactly the same thing. I'd be like, and cut, and I'll take that. Yes. Could you just bring that over to me, please? Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, just yeah, <laughs> just leave it in my trailer, and I will. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yes. Where do these things keep going? We have to keep making more swords. I don't know. Don't worry about it. And don't look in my basement either. <laughs> Well, that concludes our review of Highlander and our interview with executive producer, writer, creator, showrunner, Ryan Condal of the House of Dragon. And an all-around great guy. We really appreciate you spending a little time here with us, Ryan. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. Some great insights on movie props and what you're up to there with House of Dragon. I'm sure I'm going to attract the ear of many GOT fans out there because I'm not a super fan. I didn't go way in-depth on what you're working on, and maybe I'm not worthy of interviewing someone like Ryan with such an important project coming up. But we really enjoyed having him on. And we are a primarily a rock and roll podcast, but Highlander was big in our lives, just as Star Wars was, just as Indiana Jones was. And the music tie-in from Queen made it a natural selection for us to do our 50th show. And when I had the opportunity to have Ryan on, knowing that he had created a script for Highlander reboot, which, by the way, I'm happy to sign an NDA and come read it in your presence, if that's a remote possibility, Ryan, because I'd love to see and read your take on it. But it was just a great opportunity for us to have him on our show here, and I hope everybody enjoyed listening to Ryan and to our take on Highlander. So as usual, folks, we always say, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we leave out your favorite part? Do we miss the point? you got to let us know. We want you to tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. Make sure you follow us at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com and let us know which shows, which artists, which albums, which movies you'd like us to review. Check us out on Good Pods, Apple, Spotify, Google Music, Amazon, Podchaser, wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you check out the stuff that dreams are made of with Ryan and his partner David because they tell great stories about chasing after these movie relics that they love from classic movies and they have some serious guests on their show as well. And for both of our podcasts, if you enjoy them, please consider leaving a positive five-star review wherever it is you get your podcast because it just helps us find more listeners like you, helps us grow the show, and bring more resources into it so we can make the show more fun going forward. Now, next week, we go from one great opportunity to the next as we're going to be talking about an opportunity I had here recently to go into historic Abbey Road Studios while they're celebrating their 90th anniversary. They've been having these talks and lectures from a couple of Americans who wrote books about the Beatles and are now hosting these seminars, these lectures at Abbey Road this month, November, during its 90th anniversary celebration and talk about an amazing, magical place where all sorts of music history has been made. All of the Beatle records, classic Pink Floyd records, Oasis, one of my favorite new quote-unquote bands, made their last album there. Just so much history, so many amazing, not to mention the movies, course, of things like Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, James Bond, How to Train Your Dragon. 
It's an amazing place, amazing history. I was so fortunate to be able to go in and check it out, and I'll tell you all about it on next week's show. So, rock and rollers and movie buffs all around the world, until next time, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.